0: On June 27th of this year, -year 16-year-old Jack Weeks, excited to be out at the beach, ran to the water and dove in. But it was too shallow, and Jack landed awkwardly. He damaged his neck from his C4 through his C6 vertebrae. He was instantly paralyzed and unable to breathe. The quick thinking and fast action of some bystanders which included some doctors, ER personnel, and everyday heroes who happened to be at the beach that day, saved Jack's life. Now he and his family face an uphill battle to pay for uninsured medical costs and the many changes that must be made to their home in order to facilitate Jack as he adjusts to this new chapter in his life. You can help by going to helphopelive.org campaign Backslash 17554 to donate, share, and learn more about Jack's situation. A link will also be in the show description. You can also choose to mail a check to Help Hope Live to Radnor Corporate Center, Suite 100, 100 Matsonford Road, Radnor, PA, 19087. Make checks payable to Help Hope Live with In Honor of Jack Weeks on the memo line. Anything you can do to help will be greatly appreciated by Jack and his family, especially his parents, Cammie and Kip. You might recognize Kip from his role in The Strangers and how active he is in the horror community and with our horror family. And now he's reaching out to us in the horror community as our horror family and relying on the kindness of strangers to help his family overcome this daunting adversity. Please share Jack's story and donate if you can.
1: Thank you. Frankenstein, the name stands for fear. Frankenstein, he shocks the world as he mocks the devil. Frankenstein, he creates monsters of men. Frankenstein's most terrifying experiment comes to life. Frankenstein created woman.
0: Who am I? Who am I?
1: You see? A shield of indestructible matter. What is it for? What is it for? To give life after death, my friend, that's what it's for. Life after death. Peter Cushing as Baron Frankenstein, who crosses swords with Satan in his fight for immortality. He lives. See, hence, he's alive. Susan Denberg as Christina, the deformed creature transformed by Frankenstein to a living beauty. Within her dead man's revengeful urge to kill. Kill him. Kill him. Kill him, Christina. Forley Walters, the doctor who helps Frankenstein to violate the laws of nature. Christina, my dear, that man possesses such power, such knowledge that... Well, sometimes I don't even understand him myself. Ah! The boy Hans is the tool of the Frankenstein experiment. <laughs> These boys are the courtiers. Hans. Hans. Mr. Come back. He's come back from the grave. Somebody's brought him back.
2: Back to another exciting episode of Boobs, Blood, and Badasses: The Hammer Horror Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Chris,
3: and I'm your co-host, Ro Lauren.
2: And tonight we are talking about Frankenstein Created Woman, not to be confused with The Bride of Frankenstein, which I've called it like a thousand times. (laughs) Now we're going to take a quick break right now as I have an interview with Steve Haberman, who is the commentary on the commentary for the movie. the movie that we're speaking of, he's also on many Screen Factory films. Uh, he has a long list of Screen Factory films that he's on the commentary for. Most recently, a Universal Monster Collection, which involved, uh, which had Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi, a bunch of their films like The Raven, as well as some uh, uh, the original Fly film and on the Fly Screen Factory collection. And he was the director sorry, he was the writer of Dracula Dead and Loving It. So he knows a little bit about vampires <laughs> and horror. Um, and he's on the show with us to talk a little bit about his career, and then some factoids about Hammer and Frankenstein Created Woman. So sit right back and enjoy that, and then we'll be back with our review of the film. Welcome to another exciting episode of Boobs, Blood, and Badasses, the Hammer Horror Podcast. Ro can't join me right now, but she will be on the lengthy episode coverage of Frankenstein Created Woman. But for this episode, we have a special guest on the show with us to talk about Frankenstein Created Woman, a new Hammer movie that just came out from Scream Factory as well that he's on a commentary for, as well as commentary for a lot of other films from Scream Factory. We have film historian Steve Haberman on the show with us. Thank you for coming on Boobs, Blood, and Badasses, the Hammer Horror Podcast, Steve.
4: Thank you. I wouldn't miss anything called Boobs, Blood, and Badasses.
2: Yeah, I loved that name or whatever. I thought that was indicative of everything that Hammer stands for. My co-host absolutely loved it. That's why she jumped out of the chance to be my co-host. Unfortunately, she's not able to join us because she got stuck in a situation in Florida that's pretty bad. And it's it's Florida. And you know everything that's happening there. So.
4: Restraining her against me, that might have something to do with it.
2: Maybe, maybe. But uh, for the audience who's not familiar with your body of work, uh, tell them a little bit about yourself.
4: Okay, um, I graduated from USC Cinema a million years ago and I made a short film that won a bunch of awards and uh, I was getting a bunch of screenplays um, optioned and I became what's, uh, what I made up as a visual consultant a visual consultant is somebody that the studio or the company, the production company hires to work with the director, usually first time directors from another discipline like say you know, a car- Commercials, or uh, music videos, or something. anybody, so somebody who television sitcoms, somebody who hasn't directed a feature. So I would come on and I would help him figure out how to. Put the thing together visually, and I went on the set and stuff. Anyway, one of the guys that they hired before uh, to help was a guy named Rudy DeLuca, and he was going to Yugoslavia to make a movie called Transylvania 65000 with Jeff Goldblum and Ed Bagley and a bunch of people. And he took me along as his visual consultant, and uh, I spent ten weeks in uh, Yugoslavia, which is now Bosnia, I guess. And we made this crazy movie with Jeff Goldblum and everybody, and uh, it turned out pretty good. It was a bit of a hit, and. Uh, uh, Rudy asked me to be his writing partner. Now, Rudy had written two movies for Mel Brooks, High Anxiety and Silent Movie, and he had been Barry Levinson's writing partner for 14 years. Uh, They had written The Carol Burnett Show and got a couple Emmys, and... uh, anyway they'd they'd written a lot of stuff and Barry also had written on High Anxiety and Silent Movie so one day Mel calls Rudy's house and says what do you got and Rudy says I don't have anything and Mel says I don't have anything either I said I have something and uh, so I went and pitched Mel Life Stinks and Mel loved it when I pitched it to him he slapped the table and said we'll make it I, I'm going to play Goddard Bolt. And I said, well, I was thinking Richard Dreyfuss. He said, I'm playing Goddard Bolt. I said, okay, fine. If you want to play Goddard Bolt, that's fine. So we made that movie, and we got along really well. And uh, Rudy and I wrote another movie called Dracula Dead and Loving It, and we put it on Mel's desk. And uh, I was coming into Mel asked me uh, if I would like to direct a movie for Brooks Films. Brooks Films is his company. He made The Elephant Man and The Fly and all these great movies. And he asked me if I'd like to direct something. So I wrote this big, huge science fiction horror film. And I was coming in every week to meet with Mel about it. And uh, I noticed that that script for Dracula, Dead and Loving, it was still in exactly the same corner of his desk as it had been, you know, like three weeks before. I said, Mel, are you going to read that? And he says, yeah, yeah, I'll read it. So one night around 930, when I'm about out of money, the phone rings. Hi, it's Mel. We're going to make Dracula. I'm playing Van Helsing. He says, let's have lunch tomorrow. Bang. And that was it. Then we made that one. And then uh, after that, I, I produced uh, three HBO specials, uh, comedy specials starring Mel, and I got Emmy nominations for all three of them. Lost all three of them, but I got nominations. And uh, in the meantime, I started... Uh, I, I wrote a book on silent horror movies called The Silent Scream. It's still in print. Go to Amazon and buy it. You won't be sorry. And uh, I started getting hired to do... Commentaries because I had done the audio commentary on the uh, DVD of Dracula Dead and Loving It with Mel, and it turned out really well. And so I started getting hired to do these commentaries mostly by either Scream Factory or Constantine Nasser. They were the producers to do just incredible classic horror movies. I got the best titles. Nobody's done titles like mine. The original Dracula with Lugosi. The original Mummy with Karloff. uh, The the Mad Love with Peter Lorre. The Body Snatcher with Karloff and Lugosi. uh, Just it goes on. All the great Hammer movies, like 20 Hammer movies. The great Corman Poe films like House of Usher and Mask of the Red Death. Um, the William Castle movies, ha- ha- House on Haunted Hill, The Tingler. I did the commentaries on all of those. So you may or may not have uh, heard one of my commentaries. If you're a true classic horror film, you've heard a lot of my commentaries. So uh, so maybe we already know each other. Anyway, that's why I'm here.
2: And you recently did, uh, I mean, you've done a lot of Scream Factory releases. The classic horror universal movies, there's the Fly box set. And then uh, some Hammer films. And the most recent one is the podcast, uh, sorry, the movie that we're covering today, Frankenstein Created Woman.
4: Yes, a great movie. It's a great classic movie for Hammer films starring Peter Cushing as Baron Frankenstein. It's the uh, third sequel to Curse of Frankenstein, which was Hammer's first color gothic and Peter Cushing's first performance as uh, Baron Frankenstein. And it just it started the whole... Color Gothic revival in the mid nineteen fifties that ended up, you know, being responsible for movies like Psycho and Mask of the Red Death and The Innocents and all the Mario Baba. Just almost everything is, it was made because of the gigantic hit of Curse of Frankenstein and the Hammer movies that immediately followed it, like Horror of Dracula and, uh, you know, like that The Mummy. So, so Frankenstein Created Woman is is directed by Terrence Fisher. Terrence Fisher was Hammer's greatest director. And he was their greatest director because he really understood the essence of gothic. Um, He said gothic horror movies are fairy tales for adults. And if you see Frankenstein Created Woman, it's really a very demented version of Cinderella. Yes. Yes, right? Yes,
2: 100%.
4: Yes, because the stories about this young girl who's disfigured... And uh, but she has a lovely heart and um, she's in love with this boy whose uh, father was beheaded for murder the town has a guillotine just outside of town as all towns should and um, he saw his father get his head lopped off when he was a little boy not his father but he, he was a little boy he saw his father when he was a grown man get his head lopped off and um, so it's haunted him and now he's in love with this, this uh, disfigured cripple girl Who's very pretty and, and on the side of her face that's not disfigured, and uh, so bad things happen. But the other great, um, she's like Cinderella. She works in her father's tavern, and everybody's mean to her. the 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 three town thugs, you know, who are the sons of the aristocracy, they're very mean to her. And her father's even very dismissive of her. He acts like he's kind of ashamed of her, even though you know he's, try, he's trying to save up some money that maybe some doctors can help her out, but so far, no good. And so nobody, these two are outcasts, and they're in love. And that's very similar to a movie director, a Hollywood movie director that uh, Terrence Fisher, the director of Frankenstein Created Woman, said that he admired very much. It was a man by the name of Frank Borzaghi. And Frank Borzaghi made silent movies, and they were very romantic, very romantic, movies like Seventh Heaven and Street Angel, these are silent movies made at 20th Century Fox in the 1920s. Big hits in their time, and then he went on to make some some sound movies in the 30s and 40s, and they were very romantic, and again, they were about these... They were always about like outcasts, you know, that lived in a garret, and it was the, them against the world. They loved each other. Maybe the woman's a prostitute, the guy is maybe a thief or whatever, and um, and it, it, and it's their story how they find each other and how they. Well, that's exactly what Frankenstein created. Woman is. It's it's like a Frank Borzage movie if he ever made a horror film. So it's it's a very sad setup, and into this um, setup comes Baron Frankenstein, Peter Cushing cold-hearted as ever, a sociopath who cares only about his scientific experiments. He's an atheist, and he has no time for humanity because all he thinks about is what he wants to accomplish uh, in terms of bringing the dead back to life. That's how presumptuous he is. But he doesn't believe in God, so why should he even care? So, But he does, and he's he's brought creatures to life of his own creation, and it didn't go well three times before this movie, but he keeps doing it. He keeps doing it because he, he's like um, a magician because really, I mean, isn't that what life is? Life is, uh, is magic to us. We don't know how to create it. We haven't even come close when it's gone. We don't know how to restore it. Mm -hmm. When someone dies, you're not going to see him again. When you die, nobody's going to see you again. And it's, and the, the hammer interpretation of that is different than, uh, Mary Shelley's interpretation in her original novel, Frankenstein, was, which was written in 1818. Yeah, her- Mary
2: Shelley's version didn't have as many, um, uh, uh, wasn't uh, what a lot of people consider to be exploitive back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s when those movies were coming out.
4: Well, it's not really... It's not a matter of exploitive. The, Mary Shelley wrote in 1818... No, 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 no,
2: no. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I don't mean that. And I know you don't mean that. But those 50s, 60s, and 70s movies, I went and looked at like old like reviews of those movies, and people were like aghast at the oh, amount of blood, the breast, okay. the cleavage, the violence. Yeah. You know what I mean? Nobody had seen something like that, whatever, from yeah, but, those exactly, kind of monster movies.
4: Exactly. But those critics who said that were morons because they were only looking at the surface of the movies. Those These movies... The Hammer movies, directed by Terence Fisher, that's Curse of Frankenstein, Horror of Dracula, Revenge of Frankenstein, How to the Baskervilles, The Mummy. Those are very deep. Right. They're very, very deep, and they're not no. exploitative. They have, they have elements of Jacobean revenge tragedy, which was a, uh, a, a very sort of bloody um, genre of stage plays that came out in the 1500s now. and 60s. 16- but they but these Frankenstein created woman especially is very deep because it's about Frankenstein takes the soul of the boy who's ultimately executed for a murder he didn't do by the same guillotine that lopped his father's head off he takes that boy's soul and puts it into the crippled girl's body
2: yes very this, uh dr Jekyll Mrs. Hyde was which was a movie a few years later.
4: Yeah a little bit but also he 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 fixes her body and her face and she's quite gorgeous.
2: Right. She's she becomes bit. uh she becomes so gorgeous that she could be in Playboy. And
4: she was. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask I was going to ask was she the first Hammer starlet to appear in Playboy? Yes. Okay, We're she was. That. Okay. So she predates what? the Twins of Evil who the Twins of Evil I read oh, uh Hugh Hefner saw that movie and was like Twins and Playboy—that's what we need.
4: Yeah, exactly, and uh, and they they did it. They stripped off the, the Collinson sisters. The Collinson sisters, yes. But what happened was um, in the in the story, it's very spiritual, sort of in a in a, in a strange way, because unlike creating a creature from corpses and uh, infusing it with some life from, I don't know, electricity or something. Mary Shelley is very vague about how the monster comes to life. He right. actually transfers the soul of this dead boy into the you know, restored body of this gorgeous woman, and she becomes a femme fatale, and she goes out and she revenges her dead boyfriends. Uh, you know he, she, she does the revenge for her dead boyfriend on the three guys who actually committed the murder and framed her dead boyfriend. And she does it by seducing them.
2: What was with the continuity between these films not being what they're supposed to be? Because I do not remember Frankenstein getting cryogenically frozen to be reawakened for this movie uh, at the end of The Evil of Frankenstein. Unless I forgot something.
4: No, well, that's not what happens at the end of The Evil of Frankenstein. I think each of the movies are dist- discrete adventures of Baron Frankenstein, you know? I don't think they're meant to have a continuity. This was in the days before...
2: Well, it's, but hold on. The the, the curse of Frankenstein and the film that follows that, The Revenge,
4: he's... No, that's direct continuity.
2: Yeah, yeah that's, that's direct true. continuity. Right, and all of direct. the Dracula movies had direct continuity. If Dracula was left dead one way, he was resurrected that way. He uh, he, was he, However he died in the previous movie, they actually did a good job of making sure that that death stayed intact for the next movie so he could be resurrected. Whether or not everything else about the castle, the way the castle looked, or who he's getting revenge upon, or people being left at bell towers or whatever that weren't in the previous films is re- irrelevant. At least they kept Dracula's death to resurrection very, uh, you know, connected.
4: Well, three times they did that, and just as many times they didn't do that. The, the, the continuity from horror of uh, Dracula and Dracula, Prince of Darkness, complete continuity. Dracula, Prince of Darkness to Dracula Has Risen from the Grave, complete continuity. Dracula Has Risen from the Grave from Taste of the Blood, complete continuity. Taste of the Blood of Dracula to Scars of Dracula, no continuity. Right. Scar- scars of Dracula to Dracula A.D. 1972, no continuity. Dracula A.D. 72 to Satanic Rites of Dracula, no continuity. So they did it when they felt like it. You know? Except
2: for, like... I, and, and that was the same Peter Cushing, right? From satanic rights to uh from, from, from A D to Satanic Rights, that's the same Van Helsing, right?
4: Yeah, that's his son, Lawrence Van Helsing.
2: Oh okay, but it's the same it's the same character in both movies. Right. Okay. Right. Just, okay just want to make sure about that. There's no Frankenstein in that movie. There's barely any Frankenstein in that movie. In which movie? Created Woman.
4: Oh, you mean there's very little Baron Frankenstein? There, there's yes. very little of
2: Peter Cushing, yes.
4: Yeah, he's he's not really the protagonist of that movie. The protagonist is Christina, the uh, the crippled girl. So he's uh he's kind of he if if it's Cinderella, Baron Frankenstein and his uh and his assistant uh is uh, they they're the fairy godfathers, we'll say, who uh who, who grant uh, Cri- uh Cinderella her wish and turn her into a beautiful princess, but a beautiful princess who kills people.
2: Again, you're right. It makes it the most unique of all the, the Frankenstein stories. They kind of go into a much darker direction to the next movie.
4: Yeah, the next movie, Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, is uh, – in the first one, Curse of Frankenstein, uh, Baron Frankenstein is a complete sociopath. He uh, he will do whatever it takes, including murder, to, to uh, create his creature. And um, in the second one, he, he's a sociopath, but he's kind of become socially acceptable. And uh, in the third one is completely out of continuity. It's a di- it, Frankenstein has a completely different character. He complains a lot. He feels sorry for himself. Evil of Frankenstein, I don't get. Frankenstein created woman. He's still a sociopath, but he's not the main character. And he kind of accidentally, for his own purposes, does uh, a good thing. If creating a murderer is a good thing, but I mean, <laughs> he do- he, the, the way the way the the story is set up is that. Um, Christina, the the uh, the woman that he creates, we'll say by by infusing the soul into her from her dead boyfriend, she's um, she's a very sympathetic character, and her murders are most understandable, but uh, they're still murders.
2: Right. Um, you know, there's no begetting that. Are you involved with the Blu-ray releases for the next two films? And there's no Scream Factory Blu-ray for uh, Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, right?
4: No, that's owned by Warner Brothers, and they, they've already released it on Blu-ray.
2: Okay, but they released it on a bare-bones Blu-ray with just the film in the trailer, correct?
4: That's correct.
2: Why is Warner Brothers releasing such bare-bones garbage when they can see Scream Factory is putting all this time and effort into Collector's Edition, which are clearly selling? They wouldn't keep doing these movies if they weren't selling, but Warner Brothers is like, let's just put it on Blu-ray.
4: Well, because Warner Brothers are selling, too. And they are, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're selling too, but they just don't. You know, they don't want to invest in it. They don't have, uh, they don't have that sensibility. We'll say the the fan sensibility or the film historian sensibility. They're they're into marketing.
2: It just—I really wish they had put a little bit more effort into those releases because, I mean, the the versions that you're on—they're all chock full of stuff. I mean, God, the the Evil Frankenstein had like a pilot to a TV series that was never, you know, came out, and another version of the movie, and that—that just shows a lot of care and effort that Screen Factory puts into the love of their movies.
4: Screen Factory is a great company for film fans, for horror film fans. I mean, they—they they really are the criterion of horror films, and uh, I I agree with you, you know, I I don't think any other company is going to put the kind of love and care and detective work and, and, you know, money uh, into these movies as Scream Factory does, because it's done just as much for love as it is for profit, Um, but other companies don't feel that way. Maybe someday Scream Factory will be able to lease those Warner Brothers titles, and, uh, you know, they'll give them the Scream Factory treatment, I hope.
2: Uh, but the next two Scream Factory Frankenstein films coming out uh, are uh, The Horror of Frankenstein and Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, which has um, both uh, Peter Cushing and David Prowse in it, right? Correct. Very, very cool. Why does Peter Cushing leave for The Horror of Frankenstein?
4: Well, it wasn't voluntarily. They, what they wanted to do was reboot the Frankenstein franchise, Hammer Films did, uh when the culture changed in the late 60s and early 70s, they realized that the, uh, the young audience that went to go see their movies was becoming very sort of counterculture. They were becoming very revolutionary and responding to the Vietnam War and the Civil Rights Movement and stuff. So they wanted to make uh, movies that they thought would appeal to that audience. And sometimes they made movies that ended up appealing to no audiences in their efforts to do that. But uh, that's why they made Horror Frankenstein with Ralph Bates. Which is basically a comedy remake of Curse of Frankenstein. I'm on the. Co- I, I did the commentary on Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. That's the last Hammer Frankenstein movie. It's the last movie that Terrence Fisher directed, and it's the last time that Peter Cushing played Baron Frankenstein. And uh, it's a great, very melancholy movie. And uh, it, it's um, and like all the the Hammer horror films. It uh, it, it, it uh, confounds expectations. It goes in, in very unpredictable but very interesting directions with the story material. So I highly recommend – I actually re- recommend both of them. But uh, in, in terms of uh, you know the art of the horror film and the art of Hammer films, buy Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell and listen to my commentary with Constantine Masser and you will be uh, pleased and smart.
2: Out of all the films that you've done commentaries for, and let's just keep to the Hammer movies, because I, when you wanna, when we recorded for my radio show, and I saw the list of films that you've uh, worked on with with Scream or whatever, that that is just unbelievable. But of all the Hammer movies, do you have a favorite?
4: Yeah, I guess I would. Let's see, my favorite,
2: and it doesn't have to be necessarily a movie that you've done a commentary for; it could just be any of them.
4: Well, my ha- my favorite Hammer film is is Dracula, Hor- Horror of Dracula. Horror it's Dracula in this uh, country my my second favorite might be the devil rides out which i did do the commentary for with constantine nasser and uh, the son of the screenwriter uh, the legendary richard matheson and he he, the three of us did the commentary on uh, the devil rides out which i highly recommend a great great hammer movie
2: why is there a ton of photos of uh, of uh, peter and uh, the actress um, shoot, uh, name, uh, Susan, with her like you know in the bandages around her waist and her breasts, but those shots are not in the movie whatsoever.
4: Terence Fisher made the movie he wanted to make, and uh, the uh, the publicity department took the pictures they wanted to take. They had two different uh, motivations; they had two different goals in mind. Peter Cushing was trying, as I said, to make a movie that was uh, an adult fairy tale, a sort of. Um, uh, version of Cinderella as told by the Marquis de Sade, and um, the publicity department was trying to get everybody to go see it. So, you know, Susan Denberg was uh, happy to take her clothes off, and Peter Cushing was happy to pose with her when she did.
2: Ah, okay. I just we I I think you talk about a little bit about that on the commentaries that the uh, the shots from the promo stills are just not you know non-existent in the film.
4: Right, they're not. It would have thrown things a little bit for the the mood that Terrence Fisher was trying to create.
2: Do you think Terrence Fisher was the more um, the most popular of all the Hammer directors? Do you think he was the most conservative or the most outgoing?
4: He was the most conservative. He was a Christian, and uh, a lot of his Christian values are, are in those movies. And uh, yes, he was the best. He was the best in terms of being an auteur, in, in terms of infusing this material with his own interests in his own personality and his own worldview and uh, that kind of thing and uh, yeah he was he was the best and he I, he was also the most prolific in their most famous uh, genre which is the color Gothic you know mm-hmm. the, the period color gothic
2: right. The, uh, you know who I was big surprised to find out that was a huge Hammer fan when I was doing, um, before long before I even started this podcast? Are you familiar with uh, the animator Bruce Tim from the just from the DC Animated Universe?
4: No, you'd have to ask Constantine about that. Uh, <laughs> I'm okay. not, a, not really a comic book fan.
2: Okay, that might be a little bit, but you've heard of Batman the Animated Series, the, the, the big animated series of the 90s with Mark Hamill as the Joker, right?
4: I remember it. Yeah, it was beautiful. If you
2: if you Google Bruce Timm Hammer drawings, he has dozens of completed drawings he's done of various scenes or posters of Hammer, fully colored, some nude and or some in black and white. It's it's really it was really cool to find out how much of a big Hammer fan he was.
4: Yeah, you know, a lo- Hammer inspired a lot of people. Um George
2: Lucas <laughs> a big one. I'm sorry. George Lucas being a big one.
4: Yeah, George Lucas, Martin Scorsese, Joe Dante, of course, uh, John Landis, Spielberg. I mean, they all loved Hammer because Hammer was very transgressive for its time, and especially in the late 50s. People just didn't make movies with that kind of graphic gore and just a hint of subversive sexuality in it. It just wasn't done. As a matter of fact, they were always fighting with the uh, the BBFC, the the British Board of Film Censors, because... Uh, you know, they figured this, the film censors figured out what Hammer was up to, and, uh, you know, they, they didn't like it. But the, the, the movies made tons of money, brought lots of money back to England. As a matter of fact, in 1968, Hammer got the Queen's Award for industry because they'd brought so much money in with their horror films to England. And uh, so you can't really argue with that kind of success.
2: Well, thank you so much, Steve, for coming on the show. And if you like to uh, check out more of Steve's work, go to ScreamFactory.com. His name comes up a lot on a lot of different releases, like the Fly uh, co- the Fly Collection that recently came out, as well as the Universal Classic Monster Movies. And if you'd like to hear a more in-depth conversation between me and Steve, check out Radio of Horror. It's coming up very soon. Steve is on there for an extended period of time talking about his incredible library of work and uh, everything else that he's accomplished as well. Now on to the commentary... Now- now on to the podcast with me and Roe about Frankenstein Created Woman and we would like to thank Steve for coming on the show with us and Ro now has the plot synopsis for us for Frankenstein Created Woman
3: I do all right Frankenstein Created Woman was released March 15th 1967 directed by Terrence Fisher and it is a kind of continuation of our hammer horror frankenstein films that we have been doing thus far our film begins with a shot of a guillotine striking down and then a priest reading a drunken man his last rites before getting carried off to the gallows and beheaded in front of his young son years later we see the young boy as an adult working in a lab Dr. Hertz, Thor Lee Waters, and Hans, the young boy from the beginning, played by Robert Morris, open a frozen coffin to discover it is Baron Frankenstein, Peter Cushing, and they revive him. Upon his revival, Frankenstein determines that the soul does not immediately leave the body upon death, as he was dead for one hour, and can be transplanted from one body to another with a special apparatus he has developed. In a tavern in town, Hans is in love with Christina Susan Durnberg, and the burn, who is a burned victim with the daughter of the local innkeeper. Christina's father disapproves of their relationship because Hans, uh, Hans's father was executed for murder. One night while Christina is at the inn, Hans fights with three upper class men after they insult her appearance. Anton, Peter Blythe, and... Derek folds, and Carl Barry Warren and, sl- and ends up slashing Anton with a knife. Later that night, the three men sneak back into the inn and kill Christina's father. Meanwhile, Hans and Christina are spending the night together. Hans is framed and arrested for the murder. Dr. Hertz and Frankenstein give a testimony for Hans, but the testimony of Anton, Johan, and Carl persuade the jury. Because Hans will not reveal his whereabouts during the time of the murder where he was making love with Christine, or Christina, he is sentenced to die at the same guillotine that killed his father. Frankenstein sees this as an opportunity to test his new machinery on a human, and he has Dr. Hertz arranged to receive Hans's dead body. Christina stumbles upon the execution, sites, execution site and sees Hans die. Unable to deal with this, she throws herself off a bridge and drowns. Frankenstein and Hertz successfully tra- trap Hans's soul. The authorities bring Christina to Dr. Hertz's office, and Frankenstein persuades Hertz to trap her soul. They plan to restor- restore her soul as well after they remove the imperfections from her body. The procedure is a success, but Frankenstein refuses to reveal to Christina who she really is, nor does he allow her to leave the house. After a few days, Frankenstein takes her to see the guillotine. When Christina sees it, she cries out, Papa, and faints. Frankenstein's suspicions are proven. Both Hans' and Christina's souls are in her body. Hans's soul overtakes Christina's and urges her to avenge her father and himself. She dresses up to seduce both Anton and Johann and murders them after revealing that Hans is in her body as well. Johann writes Hans in blood as he was murdered, leading the authorities to assume that Hans had sent someone else to the guillotine and he had survived. They go to Hertz and Frankenstein. Frankenstein reveals the truth: Hans's soul is controlling Christina. He then tracks Christina to the woods, where she has taken Carl for a picnic, intent to kill him. Frankenstein arrives just as Christina kills Carl, and she starts speaking with Hans's severed head, which tells her now that her work is done. Shocked at what she has done, Christina's soul resumes control, and she tries to run away. Frankenstein promises to help her, but she cannot endure her guilt, and she throws herself off a of riverbank to her second watery death. And the credits roll. Oh.
2: I like the poster that's on IMDb. If you go on the Hammer, um, what do you call it? The Hammer uh, group that I think either we're in or I'm just in. I posted a picture of uh, Susan Denberg uh, getting her bandages unwrapped, revealing herself in like a white kind of bikini with the um, yes, with yeah. uh, with a uh, Peter Cushing standing beside her. And then I also posted a drawn image by uh, Bruce Tim. Uh, creator of the Batman Superman Justice League animated series as he has a series of drawings of the various women from the hammer horror movies Um, from like this film and Dracula 1972 AD and horror of Dracula um, and twins of evil and many of the other hammer movies um, Bruce Tim did drawings of these uh, the beautiful glamour hammer women
3: yeah they're awesome I did see that post and they're so cool The movie was directed by Terrence Fisher,
2: who we talked about before. Anthony Hines uh, was the writer. Susan Denberg was the first Hammer starlet to appear in Playboy. (laughs) She would be closely followed by other starlets, including the the twin sisters in Twins of Evil, which we will get to eventually. In fact, they were actually the first twins to ever appear in Playboy uh, nude together.
3: Oh, wow. That's pretty interesting.
2: Yeah. Um, What's his name? Uh, Hugh Hefner saw that movie, and he immediately (laughs) uh, came up with the idea for Twins and Playboy.
3: Interesting.
2: Yep. Never did Twins before, and he was like, we're gonna do Twins naked Uh, and Playboy. And people were like, (laughs) uh... And he's like, they're
3: nude when they're born together. (laughs) (laughs) It's a little different uh, as you get older. (laughs)
2: Well, he eventually would have triplets in Playboy.
3: Yeah, I guess it's uh I guess it depends on how far you want to go with that. I have a uh I I definitely don't I mean, I don't have any sisters, but I've been asked before to include my mom in some of my work uh, and I'm going to say no, hard no to that. I'm pretty open to a lot of stuff and I'll do a lot of shit for money, but Gonna draw the line at that one. <laughs>
2: yeah, but what you do is not quite like Playboy. Yeah. Uh what you do is a little <laughs> bit more risque, and Playboy is tasteful artistic nudes, let's call them. <laughs> um, so I mean two but they're but they're never like doing anything with each other. You know what I mean? They're right. always just like right. they're lying on the bed, they're holding each other in a hug, they're not kissing each other, they're not crossing any lines of stuff that's probably also illegal depending right, on the exactly. shooting it. So I, I'm pretty sure incest is illegal almost everywhere.
3: I hope so. Okay.
2: <laughs> now on to some other subjects. So, um, yeah, Susan Denberg would appear in Playboy. She would be a Playboy, Playboy Playmate of the year, uh, the following year. <laughs>
3: I just know her from uh, Star Trek.
2: <laughs> I don't remember her in Star Trek. Who was she in Star Trek?
3: She's one of Harry Mudd's uh, hot ladies.
2: Oh, gotcha. <laughs> um... But uh, in you the can, original series, gotcha. You can definitely find her pictures online of uh, her in Playboy, and she is amazing looking. Oh yeah. So we opened this up with um, an amazing HD transfer for this movie. I believe this Blu-ray is absolutely uh, bursting with colors. The grass is so uh, is so vibrant, and like the guillotine, and you can see like the stains on the guillotine paint. Oh yeah. Everything just really pops as Hans watches his um, uh, father get killed.
3: Yeah, it's, uh, I I was, I mean, this, the the transfer is amazing. And I was, it's pretty interesting because while it first started, I was like, what the fuck is going on? What does this have to do with anything? But also at the same time, this is not the first time that a Frankenstein has opened with a guillotine. So I was about that. I was okay with that.
2: <laughs> it is weird that, of course, this would be the same guillotine that would come back to kill him later on.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Poor For murder, he doesn't
2: commit, so.
3: <laughs> um,
2: why is Frankenstein frozen at the beginning of this movie? Because he wasn't frozen at the end of the last movie.
3: No, he blew up. Like I'm so confused. He, I was pretty sure he exploded, or at least caught on fire.
2: <laughs> it seems like uh, Susan Denberg's character Christina is very much like Cinderella in this movie. She's uh, done up to be very unattractive one way, even if she wasn't didn't have the scar in her face. And then later on, when she comes back, uh, she's like completely transformed into this buxom blonde beauty.
3: Yeah, I was laughing to myself that. Uh... Frankenstein should actually go into plastic surgery because he gave her a little full ass whole makeover. Like, he redid her hair, he uh, fixed her face, and I'm going to say her titties look better. Like, he just gave her a 180. She looks great. He should be in plastic surgery instead of um, trying to bring back dead unsuccessfully for like the fifth time.
2: This reminds me of the mummy in Transylvania 65,000. Apparently, before her transformation, she was very hideous. And then he unwraps the bandages and she's like, bazongas, I have big bazongas. And she like grabs her breasts and starts massaging them. So she was like flat chested. And then she got like a C cup. So.
3: Yeah. I mean, there's the scene where her and Hans are like having sex and you don't really see her boobs, but you, she's definitely topless, but her, they didn't look as voluptuous. And I think it was definitely the angle and totally intentional. Um, because then she, when she becomes the beautiful version, not that, which I have a whole, I have a whole issue with this anyway, but when she becomes the more beautiful version, um, her tits are just huge.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, Susan Denberg, if you look at her pictures in Playboy, she has like, like they're probably like a D cup maybe. I, I'm right, not really yeah. great at well, measuring well, I mean, a woman's breast saying. size, but they're, they're definitely like a D cup or a large C. And yeah. when she's the, um, you know, the more unattractive version with the scars and the hair all kind of ridiculous, like badly kept and everything, she is not in any dress to lift her chest up and she might've been taped down because right. she is insanely stacked in her playboy pictures. So oh, yeah, that's um, what I'm saying.
3: Like, I think the angle when they, when it shows her topless right after they have sex, I think it was intentional because she looked not great. <laughs>
2: The other thing is that uh, Robert Morris was told – because he's on the commentary for – because there's, like, two commentary – three, two commentaries for this movie. Yeah. On the Blu-ray from Screen Factory, he was told not to move away from her because her breast is pressed up against his, ar- her, his arm and it's to hide the <laughs> nipple because we can't have any nipples showing in a Hammer movie, at least yet. Um, Terrence Fitcher was very conservative. He was a religious Catholic. So he definitely did not want to show any type of um, nudity. However, when we come to films like uh, the the you know the the uh, the the Cars Don trilogy, which are the lesbian vampire movies, those mm. definitely have like full blown nipples and everything. In fact, I mean, one of them even shows the first bush on screen apparently of a major motion <laughs> picture. Um, and that's in Twins of Evil. But then you also have movies like The Vampire Circus, where you have like a cat vampire woman and she is just basically completely nude with body paint
3: on. Right. I uh, mean, I'm into that. <laughs> I find yeah. it at this point in my life, and I guess kind of who I am as a person, I honestly find it distracting when it's like clearly normal human beings. Would be nude here, and I, they're not, and it just kind of weirds me out. Like it takes me completely out of the scene. I'm like, what the fuck? Why are they not naked? Or why are we being so obscure about this? Like, it's just a, it's just a body. Jesus Christ, man. <laughs> oh, you
2: mean like Lady Gaga in the fifth season of American Horror Story, where she was a vampire? And she does the uh, the uh, the spread of the labia and the lick the the tongue between the V-shape and her fingers to another woman while they're watching <laughs> Night of the Living Dead. And then they take those two people back to their uh, hotel and bang their brains out, suck, fuck them and suck them dry. And then she's lying there with her lover in a pool of blood on the satin sheets bed, but she has nipple tassels on and you're like... All that innuendo, her doing the whole licking her finger between her V-shape to indicate I want to eat your pussy, and right. then turn around and do that. I'm not being vulgar. I'm just pointing out the absolute hypocrisy of network television sometimes. It's like, that's oh, yeah. okay, but nipples yeah. are, are offensive. Oh, All yeah. the blood that they're in, that they just got done screwing in. In fact, they even showed them like, making out with each other, and her making out with that woman, which is... Uh, gay, lesbian rights aside, and whatever you want to say about it, it, it's still considered to be very taboo to have two people of the same sex on network television kissing each other.
3: Yeah, which is ridiculous. The whole thing is fucking ridiculous. Right. And I'm
2: just like, I'm all, that's when I stopped watching American Horror Story, because I'm just like, this is ridiculous. Every five minutes, it's like one thing is bad. I mean, they've had the first season, they have the mom character from Amer- um, Friday Night Lights, I don't remember the actress's name, um, but she's the mom character and she has that um you'll have to tell me what type of sex toy this is. What's the sex toy you can plug into the wall that has a rubber like very ball like shaped at the top of it?
3: Um is it just like a vibrator? Or is it's it a, a wand? It's a
2: vibrator. Yeah, you plug into the wall. Yeah. yeah, it's not run on batteries.
3: Yeah. Okay. They just so- have vibrators that are like that now. Okay, mine so are have- all uh mine are all USB charged. So they have a um
2: I think it's a magic wand. This was the first mm-hmm. season back in two thousand and eleven, and she mm. is masturbating with it on television. Holy but shit nipples are bad. I'm like, ah. this doesn't make any sense. She is masturbating on TV. Yes, it's over her panties, so it's let's but still, I'm like i I, I just like, what the fuck is this? Anyway, uh, uh, Robert Morris was on the Avengers TV series, and that is pretty much the only thing that I recognize him from. Um, he was a character actor, and he's still alive today, which is uh, cool. good to know. I mean, if we maybe uh, ever get him on the podcast. Uh, the prisoner character in there, and he's just known as the prisoner, uh, but he's like seen one time in this movie, is Duncan Lamont. And he is in Quartermass in the Pit. And <laughs> another actor, oh, he was on Doctor Who. He was in Death of the Daleks, parts 1, 2, 3, and 4, which I don't know much about older Doctor Who to know what the significance of that is.
3: Yeah. Um, I, m- most of my knowledge starts at nine. I kind of only vaguely know stuff from before that.
2: So, she's also a bar wench at a bar, which is very unusual, because they would seem to only hire like, beautiful women, but maybe <laughs> because her father is prestigious in the community, that's why they hired her to take pity on her. But these three douchebags treat her horribly. Okay.
3: G- And it's so weird, too, because when that scene first starts, it almost comes off as sincere. And I was like, at first, I was like, there's no fucking way that this rich asshole would be sincerely thinking that this woman is beautiful. But also, like, I don't know what it is with (laughs) the, the Frankenstein films and thinking that, like, one little thing makes you, like, horribly disfigured. Like, she's not even that disfigured. Honestly, the part that bothers me the most is that she won't comb her goddamn hair.
2: Yeah, her hair is pretty <laughs> disgusting. Um,
3: yeah, like her hair is horrible, but I, like she's still fucking beautiful, regardless of if she has like a limp or um, the like splooches on her face. And like, guys, calm down. She, clearly, she's still hot. <laughs> um, the
2: scars on her face uh, kind of remind me of
3: uh, Did you
2: see the movie Ready Player One? no i didn't oh <laughs> you should see it uh the main character the second uh well one of the main characters the female lead in the movie that mm-hmm. steven spielberg bumped up to a bigger role in the movie which is like a lot of people don't like the movie and i've always said to them why and they're like oh well th- th- you know they they it, it's steven spiel it's another steven spielberg fluff piece or whatever and he glamorizes the things too much or whatever and i'm just like Honestly, they took a lot of the crap out of the book that I didn't like. They made the main character a little bit more likable because in the book, he's like this, you know, uh, secluse, uh, overweight, pimply faced, um, uh, hyper sexualized, uh, you know, or hyper horny, uh, obsessed fanboy of the female character. He's not right. I mean he's an average person. He's there's nothing criminally bad about him. He's
3: just I right, right. like
2: him in the book. But in the movie they just made him an average-looking guy. And he's not fat, he's not he's not he doesn't have acne. Um he does love Artemis or whatever, but he's not obsessed with her except for when he finally goes on a date with her and he's just like, "I think I love you." And she's just like, "You have no idea what you're talking about. You have no idea who I am. We're in a virtual world." Anyway, <laughs> she uh has a bare minimum part in the book and she's really a side character whereas in the movie she is a secondary character and yes they do fall in love whatever but I thought they beefed up her character a lot better and for her like human side they gave her like a birthmark across her left side of her face
3: oh interesting
2: yeah and she she hides it with like long hair and he's like I don't okay. see it as being anything unattractive and she's like you don't have to say that to me I've lived with it my whole life and he's like no no hmm. I really think you're beautiful and I thought that was sweet, and yes, that it's a little fluffy and cookie cutter because it's Steven Spielberg. But whatever. I mean, again, it just I felt like they made the characters a lot more re- l- relatable and and uh, easier to like than in Ernest Cline's novel. So that's
3: mm. what this kind of I reminds just, me of. Hmm. Oh yeah, I see that now. I just googled it, and uh, yeah, it does. I was thinking it was like a port wine stain, which is what it, those are called. That's um, what
2: it. That's yeah. That's what my girlfriend called it.
3: Yeah, Port Weinstein. Yeah, yeah, that <laughs> yeah, it does. Hers is smaller, but it definitely resembles that.
2: So, in the com- one of the commentaries, they talk about how they uh, Frankenstein is a secondary character in this movie, and this he movie is, is the Disney esque Frank as Disney esque of a Frankenstein movie as you're possibly gonna get, and it really is. And you're right, Frankenstein is barely in this movie.
3: Yeah, honestly, that was in my notes. I was like, what the fuck, man? I was like, I don't give a shit about hands. Please just give me Frankenstein. I want this evil bastard back. But he's like, he, he maybe has fucking five minutes of lines. If you put all his lines together, I guarantee he's got like maybe five minutes of the whole movie.
2: He does look like a badass with that top hat and coat on.
3: Oh, God, yeah. The production images, amazing. Like, they're so good. And he's got that one where he's, like, holding the skull, and it's fantastic, and I would have it as a poster in my house. But he's just not in this movie. And when he is in this movie, he's so subdued. Um, Like, he's not evil. He's not malicious, really. He's just like, oh, cool. Someone died. I guess I can use it. He's, like, about the big thing, too, is this one. He's really about the soul. Like, it's so much more... Uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Like intangible or f- ephemeral? Like it's not. It's not as like science feeling, mm-hmm. and it's not as grounded as the other ones. Where he was like, no, if I can. In the previous films, when he was like, if I can just get the fucking brain working, if I can get the nervous system back up, if I can get the parts of the human to start again, I can make it work. And this one's like, ah fuck it. You can just throw soul in, use the soul, just chuck it in a goddamn body, who cares? And like, what the hell is happening? What is happening?
2: One of the actors, uh, who played Johan, Derek Floyd's, uh passed away this past January.
3: What? Holy shit.
2: Yeah, he's one of the tr- he's one of the trio that uh picks on um Susan Denberg's character, Christina. Uh <laughs> one of the other actors is Alan Naughton, died in two thousand two. Uh, Again, and all these are pretty much character actors. Alan was um, in uh, Patoon. He was a British briefing officer. Uh, He's been a million years since I've seen... I'm sorry, not Patoon. Patton. He was in Patton. It's been a million years since I've seen Patton. Um, But one of those character actors, uh, as far as I can tell, this was his only Hammer production. His credits go back to 1951. And then hmm. Peter Blythe plays the third of the uh, trio of uh, hooligans that will eventually get their comeuppance. Um, another character actor that I'm not too familiar with as well. The jackasses at the bar taunt to the tune of Old Black Joe. Do you know that song?
3: No, I didn't even realize that.
2: That's a, I didn't even know what they were taunting as when they uh, discover that the, uh, the lovebirds have uh, slept together. Um, mm-hmm. But it's an old British uh, song that I'm gonna look up right oh. now while you go on with the next set of notes. Yeah, because they,
3: I, I was, it's, it goes on for a long time, which was the one thing that I thought that that, that scene lasted a while. But if it's an actual song, that kind of explains it. Cause uh, I was like, okay, dude, I get that, I get the gist. You're calling him, you're calling her an ugly virgin. I get it, I get it, I get it. Can we move on with the scene? It's been like five fucking minutes of you singing this song, but. That makes more sense. I, it was just some British shit that I didn't understand. That, that makes a lot more sense. Now I feel bad. <laughs>
1: my heart was and, oh, no. um,
3: and hands getting all angry about their little song that they sing. I have no idea what time of day that scene takes place in either. I first, I thought it was...
2: Early morning, like, maybe? After they yeah. slept together overnight, I'm assuming.
3: Right. But then they, is that uh, before or after they go and um, try and kill her dad? Hmm. I really don't remember.
2: Back to Frank's laboratory. Um, Frankenstein in this is more of a metaphysicist than he is a scientist in this movie.
3: Yeah. Which, I mean, I think is interesting conceptually. Uh, I just don't think it was explored enough in the film for me to like really be on board with it. But maybe I'm just partial to like my super evil Frankenstein. Well in I the like novel Frankenstein he's evil.
2: in the novel Frankenstein he <laughs> reads about alchemy from the middle from the Middle Ages.
3: Yeah, I mean I can see how that would go. That'd be interesting.
2: Now the commentator call uh the commentator for the movie is Hans and he's also he's joined by uh, a couple of the gentlemen um, that would, uh, you know, frame him for murder. But uh, they call them the Three Blades, but they also re- refer to them as the Three Stooges.
3: All I can think about was that one. I can't remember if it was Anton or the other one who, uh, it was when he gets picked on by hands and he's like, My father will hear about this. Uh, all I could think about was uh, fucking Malfoy from Harry Potter. It was so funny.
2: Yeah. Daddy's boys. They're mm-hmm. the worst. Um, So Susan goes off to get her face fixed. And again, there's a shot of Hans when he gets captured by the police. uh, And there's a very bright blue building that just pops so much or whatever. All the coloring in this movie really pops, especially the blood, the fake blood. It's just so (laughs) red and prominent when uh, Hans goes to the guillotine, the same one that his father was at, and gets his head cut off after Susan gets her face fixed. And then she can't take it and she decides to commit suicide. Yeah. Uh, they also point out that she's gonna be with him now, and it's just like, well, if you're all a bunch of uh, God-fearing Christians, no, she's not. She's gonna go to hell. She commits suicide.
3: Exactly. If that's
2: what you believe. I'm not Twice. gonna get into the. Uh, I'm not gonna get into the debate of God, religion, suicide, and where you should go, or shaming people for committing suicide. But in the context of the movie, they're all Christians. Except for that one guy who was an atheist over in that vampire Dracula movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Or anybody who happens to be a Jew, because I think we've had a Jew as well. Um, In Christian Catholicism, if you commit suicide, you go to hell. That's it. There's also no funeral for you either. Which may have been how uh, Frankenstein was able to acquire Susan's body so easily. Now, did he plan all along to be able to transfer the soul of Hans into Susan's body? Was that I'm what like all sure. of that goofy machine we were used for? Because that was the impression I got from watching the film and then rewatching it with the commentary.
3: Yeah, uh, because I at first he seems um, surprised when she yells out "Papa" when he, when she sees the guillotine, but then he's like, "Oh well, I guess it worked. I guess he didn't feel like sewing Hans's head back on."
2: Maybe, yes, because Hans was completely decapitated. The scene where Hans's body is on the table, they said that uh, there is a pillow below for him to tilt his head back to rest his head on uh, while oh. they're filming that scene from the angle to obscure his chin poking out. Uh, so that is him lying on the table. He came back for just a day's worth of work and got paid to lie there on the table the whole day.
3: Ha! <laughs> that's awesome
2: yeah but he had to hold his head back the whole time and then get rest every once in a while so the you know he didn't pass out from the blood flowing to his head uh, yeah seriously I gotta point out the line that says uh, so when Hans is so before he gets his, before he gets decapitated he's on trial and they, Frankenstein goes to the trial and uh, somebody asks him, do you think you can tell a murderer just by looking at him and I threw in yes I look in the mirror all the time. right this is also the whitest courtroom
3: ever i was just laughing my ass about how old that one like lead cop was like this dude's like 99 years old why is he still a cop
2: now she's not credited in the movie i don't know if she's credited online susan denberg does not speak very good english or does not speak english well excuse me The woman who is credited for dubbing her over all of her lines, with the exception of when Hans talks through her, is Nikki Vandersill. And she also dubbed over Ursula Andrews in Dr. No.
3: Oh, wow. Yeah, I knew that she was dubbed, but I didn't know um, anything about her.
2: (laughs) So all of the scenes where uh, they bring Christina back to life and it's all those promo shots we see of Susan Denberg in the white bikini... That is strictly for promo reasons only. Once again, yeah. um, out of all of the Hammer studio directors, uh, Terrence Fisher was the most conservative and the most religious. And he didn't believe in skin to win.
3: <laughs> I mean, I guess good for him. Right. Interesting.
2: The hilltop to the execution apparently is nowhere. They built that.
3: Oh, that okay. I thought a lot of these were built because a um, a lot of them looked like sets to me, but I didn't know about that. I didn't think that that that's interesting. They did a good job, I thought overall. Like the just all the sets looked really nice in this one.
2: If you go on to Radio Horror's Facebook page, uh, you can see pictures. If you scroll down or just click the picture link, you can see pictures of my visit to Vermont, uh, to where they filmed *Beetlejuice*, and. The hilltop where they built the house is just a blank hilltop next to another house, but they built the outside of the house for those shots. There is no house from Beetlejuice. It's, it was a Hollywood production. Also, apparently in 2005 and in 2015, they rebuilt the entire bridge. So the bridge is completely unrecognizable now because they had to rebuild the bridge, but the old bridge was intact for a number of years until 2015 and they had to rebuild it. So, wow, but the bridge is still down the street from the hilltop where the Maitlands accidentally um, die. (laughs) Frankenstein's equipment looks like he's trying to pick up uh, ESPN 1234, maybe get some HBO.
3: (laughs) It sure does. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it was not quite as elaborate as it usually is.
2: Yes, definitely. It's not as weird and goofy, but he's got all the satellite dishes everywhere. Um, I guess uh, you needed satellite dishes in 1895, which according to the commentator is when the newbie takes place.
3: Yeah, the only thing I really had to look up in this one that uh, I was confused about was where this movie is supposed to take place. Um, Because some of it looks German. Everyone clearly is British, uh, but the cops are dressed like Swiss. So (laughs) apparently it is supposed to take place in Switzerland, which, I mean, I guess makes sense because all of the previous films are also supposed to take place in Switzerland save for a couple times when they move around um but uh, it just unlike the other ones it was never really made very clear to me nothing really about the context said it either but I guess I just didn't know as much I thought that was interesting too didn't really add anything but it I just like to know.
2: (laughs) So when, um, at the one hour mark, that's when we finally actually get the monster, and we get the sexiest monster out of all of the Hammer horror Frankenstein creations. Because let me tell you, the next three monsters are fugly compared to Susan (laughs) Denberg. None of them appeared in Playboy. One of them, one of them would become the Sith Lord Darth Vader, but they're all pretty fucking awful looking. The outfit that they put her in afterwards reminds me of this scene from what is now considered to be one of my favorite comedies of all time. See if you can figure out from the clip. What the fuck are you wearing?
1: She bought me this shit, okay?
2: It's a traditional
3: Swedish suit. I don't see another fucking Swede <laughs> up in here dressed like this. It's all I could do on such short notice. You just take the jacket off, it's going to make it better. It's just make it look, oh my God. <laughs>
1: Better with the jacket on? Great. Raz in the Moogai, I get it. Fuck you, Maggie.
3: Calm the smurf down. Bring a fucking suit next time.
0: <laughs> you dress me like Captain Crunch's grinder date.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> the outfit she's wearing it looks exactly like the way Seth Rogen wears in that scene.
3: <laughs> oh my god. I haven't seen that movie, so that's that's pretty
2: interesting. Oh my god, you have to watch that fucking movie. It is one of my favorite movies of all time, and I don't never heard anyone say anything bad about. It's got like a ninety percent of Rotten Tomatoes. Oh wow! It, it's about a guy who who works for a very um outspoken newspaper. Like um, uh he gets f- he he quits and he gets hired by uh his old babysitter, played by Charlize Theron, to become her, her new speechwriter as she has just declared her candid- candidacy for president of the United States, and the mm-hmm. two eventually start falling in love. Um, it's the most unlikely fucking pairing with Seth Rogen and Charlize Theron. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, he's really huge. And yeah, she's really huge. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Good film. Anyway, um,
3: so she's... I was just amazed that they had like fancy lady clothes because she wears a lot of different outfits and I am wondering where they acquired them.
2: (laughs) I mean, Frankenstein is a baron. He's rich, so...
3: That's, that's true. And um, I there's like zero continuity, continuity in anything. So I'm just going to assume he has his money.
2: So Christina uses her feminine wiles to uh, seduce Anton. And he is the dickish of the trio and the first to die. And if you remember a little 1970s rape revenge movie called I Spit on Your Grave, the worst to ah, die yes. was usually the last one. And that's what this yeah. plotline is very similar to. Granted they didn't they thankfully did not sexually assault her, but she is getting revenge on uh well, either she or he is getting their revenge on the lover. Either they're working together inside the same body, or he is in control and just using her voice to, you know, be a woman but turning into him when it needs to be. A lot of people compare yeah. this to Doctor Jekyll and Miss Hyde, which was a terrible nineteen mm-hmm. seventies uh exploitation movie, which I do not recommend ever watching. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I, yeah, I think it was extremely unclear, um, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, she does, I mean, she does have that one moment when the second guy, I, I guess Johan, uh, kisses her randomly after he spills wine all over her. And she just takes that, like, real well. Uh, I would have not, t- I would have just cut him right there. But she does, uh, she she goes on with her plan. But it is extremely unclear if it is her Um, like working with him uh, of her own conscious, or if Hans is just really, really good at being a sexy lady. Yeah. So at the end, when Hans finally is like, cool, we killed them all. Uh, I'm out. Have a good life. Peace. And then she seemingly is horrified at what has occurred. It makes me feel like either he was always in control of her Or she was like in some kind of weird trance state that allowed him to manipulate her. I don't really know.
2: So the woman, by the way, who voices over Susan Denberg also uh, worked on, and we didn't cover this when we, we covered the movie. She also worked on um, uh, scars of Dracula. And she is (laughs) the, uh, she is the voiceover actress for several bond girls in live and let die the man with the golden gun and moonraker on her majesty's secret service as well. Oh, wow. And she has a website too. Maybe she can come on the show. It's, it was updated this year. So she's oh, still cool. active. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of hammer women that are still alive today that have websites that you can go and order prints from, and they're actually very inexpensive. They're not as expensive with the prints to sign to fans as they are here in the United States. Because Carolyn Monroe's prints are, like, t- anywhere from $10 to $25. Wow. That's
3: extremely reasonable. And she's considered to be one of the
2: biggest hammer horror women still alive today. Also, Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, if you've seen that actress and how incredibly um, voluptuously beautiful she is, she also has several uh, pictures on her website, and she is also a Bond girl, as well as Carolyn Monroe. So it's, yeah. uh, it's a very hard choice for me. To decide, what do I want to have ordered and signed? James <laughs> Bond photo, vampire movie photo, or mummy photo? Because I'm a huge Bond fan as much as I am a Hammer movie fan. So, right in terms of British cinema, it pretty much comes down to Doctor Who, James Bond, and Hammer movies, and that's it. With the exception of maybe Shoot. also Count Duckula and uh, Danger Mouse. <laughs> Never yeah, been a, that, yeah that... never been a, I've never been a Python fan. I, 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 I've enjoyed it, but I'm not like, I'm not a big follower of the Python stuff. So,
3: oh wow. Yeah. Uh, let's see. What uh, my next thing that I had that a lot of mine are trying to decide if it was hands or Christina in the body. Um, oh, this was another thing that I thought was interesting. So while the um, there are many deaths. And many, what I would say, probably brutal deaths in this film. We don't get to see any of them. It's always, a, it always cuts right before. So, like, we get her holding a knife and looking badass. And then uh, just, like, a stabby noise and a scream and blood. And then they're dead. And it's the next scene. I'm like, no, I want to see the stab. I want to see the stab. <laughs> it <reminds laughs> Let me, me see lot. the dead body.
2: It reminds me of... Uh, a slasher movie, in a way.
3: Hmm. Yes, I can totally see what you're saying.
2: Yes. Uh, the cuts away uh, to the shadows and the fact that she is very stab-happy getting, or he or her is getting her revenge. Question. Uh, because I don't remember if they talk about this in either commentary. One commentary was done back in 2013 because they even talk about, uh, you know, just it just premiered on the American TV show uh sure. the uh the based on the stephen king novel the 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 dome movie the under the dome i was like oh okay so that's how old this commentary is and then the wow. other commentary uh steve haberman uh who was our guest th- this episode uh that he recorded that of uh, a year ago because that blu-ray just came out this past june from Screen right Factory. um so i don't i i kind of back bounce back and forth between the two commentaries and then i after i watched the movie uh, to get as much information as I can. Maybe we found a scene that I fa- felt was really interesting and re it with the commentary again. F- a different commentary. Um, But neither commentary brings up... Would you consider this to be predating Sleepaway Camp, the first transgender serial killer?
3: Um, I feel like I'm not equipped to correctly talk about this, but I will say... I think it's different. I don't I don't think that this I don't think Christina ever identifies as a person struggling with their um, mind versus their body. True. So I just think but it happens two... to be a weird supernatural type of thing.
2: Right. but they are two sexes in the same body.
3: Right. but the person themselves is not um, struggling with it. you know it's like not the mental thing.
2: okay. Gotcha.
3: I think it's just like weird, stupid shit.
2: (laughs) Okay. By the way, Nikki also has um, autographs on her website if anybody is interested. Hmm. She's the again the voice actress for a lot of these women.
3: That's pretty. I think I feel like I'm gonna really have to check these out. I kind of want. I actually. There are a lot of these ladies that I think would be awesome to have prints of.
2: Yes, uh, there are a lot of the Living Hammer starlets. Um, th- if, how about this? So on the Blu-ray, there is a Glamour of Hammer uh, feature. Yes, I, I actually did see that. Okay, so all of the Glamour Hammer women that are in that documentary uh, have websites that you can order prints from. Oh, cool. And they are still alive today. Uh, I have reached out to several of them multiple times to try to get them on the show to no avail. But I will keep trying as we continue to cover these movies, so we'll just have to wait and see. But I'm definitely am going to order a Carolyn Monroe print and one of um, – uh, I didn't see if Susan has a website. But again, the woman from um, Valerie, Valerie Leone from uh, Blood from the Mummy's Tomb uh, also has one.
3: Oh, that's awesome. Yeah,
2: which we will cover the Mummy movies uh, at some point. There's not a lot of Mummy movies. I think there's like two, maybe three Hammer Mummy movies. So it'll be really quick. um, Because after we do Frankenstein, it's pretty much wherever we want to go. Because everyone else didn't have... Only Frankenstein and Dracula had like a series of films. Right, right. So um, there's the Carnesden trilogy, which is the vampire-lesbian trilogy. Vampire, Twins of Evil, and uh, Countess Dracula. Um but other than that, everyone else is kind of like their own sec, you know, independent film. And even Blood from the Mummy's Tomb is not a direct sequel to The Mummy, which once again starred Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Oh. But if we like do a modern Hammer movie like Let the Right One In, we definitely have to do both Let the Right One In, Sweden, and Let the Right One In, uh, Hammer.
3: Right. Yeah, I think so. And we could
2: probably do them in the same episode. I think. I think so. movie. We don't fun. need to do two separate episodes It could just be called Let the Right One In Both film, you know, whatever You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll get to that eventually But on with the notes for this So, uh, again, Susan acting like a serial killer So she's not considered to be transgender That was just really a question Don't add us in the comment section below um, <laughs> I'm in my Witchblade notes now Hold on a second, where am I? Uh, okay, so the voice Coming out of Susan is kind of frightening
3: Yeah, it is
2: and that's what made I, me think of like, you know, it, it's a conflict. Like could, could this person live for the rest of their lives being like a woman who is really in control here? Is Susan even there at all or is it, or, or, or is it her lover the entire time?
3: Right. And I, that I think is so, so unclear. So like part, part of the time I felt like it was just hands, but then we have a couple moments where, she seems to be in control of herself. Like when she's with Hertz and Frankenstein, she seems to just be acting like Christina. And then also when, which we, I guess we haven't even talked about this. She has Hans's decapitated head with her. Somehow she has his head. And that reminds me
2: of uh, Ryan Reynolds talking to animals movie. Have you ever seen that? No. I don't remember the name of it. It came out maybe three, four, no, actually five years ago. And uh, he's a disturbed serial killer who has the decapitated heads of his ex-girlfriends in his fridge. And his dog and cat are telling him to murder people.
3: (laughs) That sounds hilarious. Uh, That's something, that's for sure. I don't know about hilarious. (laughs) I just sent you a Uh, picture,
2: by the way, on uh, Skype of Valerie Leon, so you know what she looks like. And the black dress that she's in.
3: Wow, that's awesome!
2: Yes, that is. By the way, um, I might edit this part out. What uh, w- did you think of what you want to do for like a video, a short video promo shoot for our podcast? Oh, I love this. Okay, so one of the best lines in the movie is when the uh, police come to investigate Christina, and after she has taken her last victim, and the police ask, uh, "Frankenstein, do you take us for fools?" Yes.
3: Just quick answer. <laughs> yeah. It's so good. Uh, you know, Peter Cushing, he always really makes these movies that he has such great lines too.
2: He does. He he gets the best lines, even when he's not in the movie that often. He absolutely gets the best stuff. Um you know, he he's trying to save his next creation because he's let it run amok again. Uh, honestly, he it just felt like the entire movie he did not keep good tabs on this creation and just let her do whatever the hell she wanted, and that is yeah, the he, problem.
3: Yeah, he kind of it seemed to me like he wasn't even that excited that it worked. That he had like a lot of other stuff going on. He was like, okay, cool, it worked. All right, uh, get the fuck out. But um, I'm Don't busy. Don't kill
2: anybody. Can't have that now. But he didn't tell her yeah. that, so she went and did it, and then she got all of her revenge. This should have been the revenge of Frankenstein. And that's it. She's dead. And then it ends again. Another just abrupt ending
3: to the movie. When the credits rolled, I was shocked. I was like, what the fuck? That's it?
2: That was so (laughs) fast how that movie ended. I was like, holy guacamole.
3: Oh, yeah. Uh, I was just like dumbfounded. I was like, oh, okay. Uh,
2: Yeah. All of Valerie's pictures on her website are 15 pounds, which work out to be $19 American.
3: Oh, that's pretty good.
2: Yeah, that's very good. And she has pictures with Sean Connery as well, or any of her Hammer pictures, or pictures of her in bikinis from the Bond movies that she was in. Sure. She was in uh, Never Say Never Again, which was the Bond um, movie that was not quite a Bond movie. Mm. And she was also in The Spy Who Loved Me, which was Roger oh. Moore and there's one you get of her like in from various movies so she's like in that black dress i showed you she's in a pretty dress she's with sean connery so it's like a montage of pictures that's the one i kind of want
3: yeah yeah um i know that the one of the things on this um uh, scream factory edition is a whole gallery of images for a lot of the promo images that they used and i think just a lot of like behind the scenes images uh
2: so the Scream Factory Blu-ray edition for this has a 2K scan from the original film, audio commentary with author, f- film historian, and new friend of the show, Steve Haberman, and film historian Constantine Nasser, who Steve said he would try to get us because Constantine is on a lot of these movies. So if it wasn't uh, the recently um, departed Ted, it was uh, Steve or Constantine, uh, as well as interviews with Robert Morris, who plays uh, the lover in the movie, and uh, Hans, uh, interview with the camera assistant, audio commentary with Derek Folds, Robert Morris, and film historian Jonathan Rigby, World of Hammer episode The Curse of Frankenstein, World of Hammer episode Peter Cushing, Hammer Glamour, and then all of the theatrical trailers, TV spots, radio spots, and then the still gallery that Roe recently talked about. Um, so this is definitely worth checking out and picking up. Uh, another Hammer movie I can't wait for us to do is Kiss of the Vampire. It's available Ooh. like on DVD, but Scream Factory just put it out. Another film completely loaded with bonus material. I highly recommend uh, if you get a chance because it's going on clearance, which means it's probably leaving the website very soon. The Vampire Lovers is available from Scream Factory for $13 or $14. That doesn't have as many bonus materials, but we will be covering that movie. And once this leaves Scream Factory's website, they will not be printing it again. Wow. Uh, they also have their own version of Phantom of the Opera, which I wasn't aware of, which is on their website.
3: Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. Hmm.
2: So I would give the blood in this episode to the guillotine.
3: <laughs> yeah.
2: The guillotine gets it. Uh, the badass for this episode.
3: Um, I uh. guess
2: we give it to the heroine who would also have the boobs for the episode
3: yeah yeah
2: i mean she's taking out people left and right in a serial killer kind of way and the fact that she was in playboy when right yeah
3: and man her boobs look great
2: <laughs> jealous
3: i don't know i feel like it, it depends i feel like if i wore that top i could i could get it but maybe i have to see what her boobs are i don't really know um
2: so sad thing was is that uh i posted a picture of her lying down covering her breasts. her Mm -hmm. butt is in the shot she's not bending over and spreading her cheeks for god's sake it's like a artistic laying down nude picture and then one of the, the and then another uh picture of uh peter undressing uh of uh undressing susan on the one of the hammer groups and it got flagged and taken down Oh my god. And I'm like, are you guys freaking serious? Jesus Christ. So, uh, Ro and I did something kind of fun. Ro, being a graphic design major, she put together a promo ad, which is up on IMDb, and will accompany this episode when it, uh, when we post it, of me as Frankenstein and Roe as the creature woman. <laughs> With our faces, not actually our bodies. So we would have to be in person to do that. And her in Florida, me in Massachusetts, and COVID-19, kind of prevents that from happening
3: yeah but once but...
2: upon a time i actually was going to direct uh, be the producer and the writer of a 10-part miniseries gender swapping frankenstein
3: i feel like that sounds pretty interesting
2: so i was the writer and i was also the lover of frankenstein she discovers her great grandfather's journal about creating the monster and thinks that oh well you try to do it with a guy i'm gonna try and do it with a woman and we mm. had the thing fully cast we had the crew together we had the, the the woman who was gonna play the creature her husband was gonna do the music for us in a r- in a rock opera kind of melody because he can play any instrument and then at the last minute the directors left the project and the whole thing fell apart. Ugh. yeah, I was so disappointed we were we were about two weeks away from shooting and the whole thing fell apart. I was so pissed. Um, the woman who was gonna play the creature and uh, was in my short film The Radio Station, about a uh, on-air DJ who is being stalked by somebody who breaks into the radio station. And um, she um, is a uh, model like yourself and does a lot of like glamorous uh, fetish photos and tattoo naked uh, photos. And I said that, you know, I, I brought up the subject to her about this, this idea I had for this, you know, miniseries. And she absolutely loved it because we needed someone who wouldn't mind, of course, being, like, naked that we can, like, completely bandage up. Um, yeah. You know, covering herself. But she would still need to be, like, pretty much almost nude um, with the bandages on her to look like a dead body. And uh, we had somebody who was going to be, like, the corpse on the table that we were going to, like, dissect um to chop up for parts and things like that and i mean i i had the whole thing all planned out in the last minute the directors
3: left oh that's so frustrating
2: yeah tell me about it well that's all the notes i have here for this episode of boobs blood and badasses the hammer horror podcast it ran a little bit longer just because we had a lot of material to cover as well as our interview with steve we want to thank steve for coming on the show with us to talk about his thoughts about um We'll be back in uh, a few weeks for the next exciting episode, Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, with Michael Neal returning with us to t- talk about uh, the next chapter of the Frankenstein Hammer movies. And again, this movie is available from Scream Factory, and you can find us on the Dorkening Network and our individual Twitters at Chris D S A V,
3: And you can find me at Roloren, R-O-L-0-R-E-N.
2: And you can find any information about the Radio of Horror show on Radio of Horror on Facebook or radioofhorror.wordpress.com and check out the other great shows on the Dorkening Network.
3: Yeah, thanks guys.